Then Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot with him to the south. Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold. And he went on his journey from the south as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place of the altar which he had made there at first. And there Abram called on the name of the Lord. Lot also, who went with Abram, had flocks and herds and tents. Now that land was not able to support them, that they might dwell together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of lives, uh, Lot's livestock. The Canaanites and the Perizzites then dwelt in the land. So Abram said to Lot, Please let there be no strife between you and me and between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brethren. Is not the whole land before you? Please separate from me. If you take the left, then I'll go to the right, or if you go to the right, I will go to the left. And Lot lifted his eyes and saw the plain of the Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, as far as you go toward Zoar. Then Lot chose for himself all the plain of the Jordan, and Lot journeyed east, and they separated from each other. Abram dwelt in the land of Canaan, and Lot dwelt in the cities of the plain, and pitched his tent even as far as Sodom. Let there be no strife between you and me, between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, because we are brethren. I believe years ago there was a book written entitled, and this is the King James Version, I guess you would say, We Be Brethren. When I was preaching in western Kentucky, probably about 15 or 20 years ago, I went to a gospel meeting at the Friendship Church of Christ, and there, Lexi Ray preached a sermon entitled, We Be Brethren, from this text, Genesis chapter 13 and verse 8. And I'll remember that particular sermon for, I guess, the rest of my life because I used a principle in that sermon that Lexi used, actually an illustration, a visual aid, if you will. He had two very large glass jars, and the glass jar was representing the church. And the first one that he brought out was full of rocks. Now, he proved that those rocks were very hard on that jar. They were rigid and hard, and there was nowhere to move. And they made a lot of noise, and they compromised that glass jar, maybe possibly making it able to break. And certainly there were no more room for any more rocks. And he said that some churches are this way. Then he got out the other glass jar, and guess what he had filled it with? Marshmallows. Marshmallows. And he said, you know, these are soft and supple, and you can just keep putting marshmallows in the jar. There's always room for more marshmallows. And it wasn't going to hurt the glass or hurt the jar. The point that he was trying to make was, are we rocks or marshmallows? Now, I don't think that we just want to be pushovers all the time. We have to fight for those things that are right. But I think sometimes that we're, we're just a lot like rocks and we don't get along very well and there's just going to be problems in the church. There's going to be problems in families. And the reason why is because both of those things are comprised of people. And as far as I know, as long as people have been involved, there have been problems and there will be problems. Recently, in talking about brotherly love at the Willow Avenue congregation, I used the illustration of two men that had gotten to a fight in a small town. And they couldn't resolve the fight, so they decided to go to the old sage one at a time. 
First one went and told his problem to the old sage, and he said, you know, you are absolutely right. And the man went home happy. The other man, with his side of the story, went to that sage, and he told him his problem, and the sage said, you know, you're absolutely right. And that man also went home happy to know that he was justified. But the wife of that sage was angry with him. She said, you know, you, you told this man he was absolutely right, and then you told this man he was absolutely right, and they were in conflict with each other. There's no way they could be both absolutely right. And the sage turned to his wife and he said, you know, you're absolutely right. You know, the point, of course, of that is that nobody is ever absolutely right. Sometimes we are going to do things that are not in keeping with the Lord's will. Sometimes our attitude isn't in the right place. Sometimes our goals aren't where they need to be. Sometimes we have conflict because personalities just don't, I guess what this used to say, G and ha, right? So there's going to be some problems. Today, as I was finishing up my thoughts for this lesson, I actually was watching uh, a video of a lesson that was given last week at the Southeast Institute of Biblical Studies by Jerry Barber on resolving conflict in the church. And I would invite you to go on their website and view any of uh, that lectureship that happened uh, just a week or so ago, and you'll enjoy the opportunity that you have to see some lessons there. But Jerry has been very instrumental in the church for several years now in interim ministry. He goes into congregations where there are problems, and he tries to help them resolve their conflicts. He's only there for a short time, and then he leaves to give way to a new preacher that will be there hopefully for a long time. I've found that over the years there are some families that have a lot of conflict, and maybe more than other families. And there are also some churches that have a lot of conflict, more than other churches. And the question is, why is that so? I think maybe because some people are just more prone to argumentation, but I also think that maybe we are leaving a legacy of strife and conflict, and that problem, if it's not solved, it seems to repeat itself over and over again. Now, now I have two, two things that I want to do with this lesson tonight. I want to talk about solving problems in the church family, but I also want to talk about solving problems in your family at home, and I think that the principles that we apply to one also apply to, to the other, and I think that we've been saying that basically all week. Anything that is good for the church is good for the family. Anything that is good for the family is good for the church because God designed them in such a way that they were to mirror each other. There's authority. There are people that are involved and very closely interconnected with each other. There is uh, fellowship and community. There's responsibility. There's a, a goal. There's growth. All these things happen in both of those situations. When I was preaching at the Pulaski Street Church of Christ in Lawrenceburg, Tennessee, I was there for about eight years. One of the elders there was a great elder of mine, brought me into his office one time. And I was about 29 at the time. I hadn't been there for very long. And I was a little bit intimidated. He said, Jeremiah, I want you to come to my office Monday morning. He said that to me on a Sunday. I didn't know what he wanted to talk to me about. But I sat down from across his desk, and he was a very well-known businessman in town. He had... He had been raised in poverty. His father had walked out on him and his family when he was just a child. And he, he was the poorest kid in town. But over time, using godly principles, being raised by his mother in the church, 
he became very successful and was one of the most benevolent people that I ever knew, a great elder in the church. But I remember sitting that, in that chair across from his desk and him telling me that life was about solving problems, that there were just going to be continual problems, and after we solved one, there would be another one, and that we would have to be ready to be equipped, not afraid, to deal with those conflicts and problems. What did Jesus say in John chapter 16 and verse 33? He said, in, in the world you're going to have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Why are there problems in the church? Why are there problems in the family? Because people are involved. And as long as we have people, we're just going to have problems. So we can do one thing. We could just wish them away. We can pretend like they don't exist or that they're just going to go away. Or we can solve and learn from them. One of the things that Jerry said as I was reading this or listening to this this morning that I thought was pretty profound, he said, if they had problems in paradise, we're going to have problems here. I mean, there were problems in paradise. There were problems in the Garden of Eden. There was even a problem that Satan came from heaven because he, of course, would not do what God would have him to do. He wanted to take away the authority of God. He wanted to be something more than what God had deemed him to be. And so if there's going to be problems in paradise, there are going to be problems in our homes, and there are going to be problems in the church. And we should not be afraid of those things, but instead we should understand that God is trying to equip us with the tools to deal with those problems. Now, the bottom line of all of it is that if we love each other, if we really love each other as God has loved us, then we are going to be committed to one another, and we're going to do everything that we possibly can within our individual ability and the spirit that God gives us to resolve any conflicts that we have. Why? Because I don't want anything to hinder you from your eternal home, and I don't want you to hinder me, and I want to go there with you together. So God gives us the opportunity then to learn from conflicts, to grow from conflicts. And I think I could pr prove to you that the church has always maintained its greatest growth during times of persecution, and duress, and problems, because that's when they had to buckle in and sink their feet down into the ground and remember what they were doing. Jesus picked 12 men, and they had problems. If someone knew how to pick the right people, certainly Jesus did. He was the master teacher. He was the son of God. And yet he picked people that argued with each other. In Matthew chapter 18, they were arguing over who was the greatest. In Matthew chapter 20, two of them and their mother came and they wanted to be first and second place on each side of Jesus in the kingdom of heaven. In Mark chapter 9 and Luke chapter 9, Jesus asked them as they're going along the road, what are you arguing about? Same thing, who wants to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Luke chapter 22 and verse 24. Look over at Luke chapter 22 and verse 24. This is right after they had partaken the Lord's Supper or Jesus had instituted it. And again, in verse 24, the disciples are still arguing over who is going to be the greatest. Unfortunately, a lot of problems come, conflicts come in the church or in the home because somebody wants to be first place. Somebody wants to be served rather than serve. So in Luke 22 and verse 24, there was also, it says, the New King James Version here says, rivalry among them as to which of them should be considered the greatest. Some versions there say strife, but the word there literally means 
a love of contention. It wasn't just that they were interested in who was going to be first place. They actually liked to talk about it. They liked to argue about it. They actually enjoyed the process of contention and argument and rivalry. I was talking to someone the other day about a problem they were dealing with, and they couldn't solve that problem right away, and they were in a conversation with somebody, and they said, look, I can't come and solve this situation right now, but, but I'll be there in a few hours. Do you want to argue about it right now, or do you just want to just be quiet about it, and then we'll solve it later on? And that person said, I want to argue about it. <laughs> I want to argue about it. Sometimes that's the way that we are. We want to fight. We're absolutely going to have conflict because our spirit isn't always in the right place. But you know, I think that churches actually need problems. A church that has no problems is probably a stagnant church because there's not enough things going on that shake the bushes. One of our elders recently said that if you shake too many bushes, eventually some rats are going to come out. And so if you are involved in trying to motivate the church, grow the church, transform the church, sometimes in, in rattling the cage a little bit, there's going to be an uncomfortable period in which people are being demanded to change and sin is going to be exposed and problems are going to be dealt with. They're going to arise. And the only way that you can deal with those problems then is to recognize them and deal with them. Someone said this once, I want the church to grow, but I don't want any more people here. I want the church to grow, but I don't want necessarily any more people here because you see we've already got enough people here. I hope it grows everywhere else. This, if you don't think this is true, some people have this kind of concept. I remember when we were going worshiping at the Turlock congregation in Turlock, California. That building had been there from its original day, and there was an older man that pretty much took care of the building. He was the caretaker of the building, and he also took the attendance. And my grandfather was preaching there at that time, and we had to build wings onto it, and then, and then we didn't have a parking lot that could sustain the people anymore, and, and the church was growing, and there was really nowhere for anywhere to sit. And uh, this man always, we noticed that the count of the attendance was lower, lower. He didn't, want it, he didn't want it to be high. He was probably 20 or 30 people low every week. And uh, the reason why was because he was married to the building. He didn't want to leave that building. Well, eventually we sold that building. It was knocked down or turned into some insurance offices, and we built another building. But he did not want the church to grow there. He wanted to grow other places, but he was happy, you see, the way things were. Are we happy with the way things are in the church, or do we want the church to grow? We don't want people that don't look like us, don't smell like us, don't think like us. If they're different culturally, if they're different socially, if they're different maybe in, in other ways that make us uncomfortable, sometimes it's difficult for us. Saul of Tarsus came in, and people didn't want him. Why? Well, because he had persecuted the church, and they didn't trust him. And so it was even difficult for the apostles to accept new people into the church. But what kind of people did Jesus bring into the church? What kind of people were attracted to Christ? Was it the people that seemed to have everything right socially, economically, and religiously? Or was it the prostitutes and the tax collectors and the people that had baggage? And so Jesus says in Matthew chapter 11, Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. He wants to take our burdens away. He wants everyone to have the opportunity to enter the kingdom of God. We can't want cookie-cutter Christians, people that have no baggage, because guess what? We have baggage. 
We just have to recognize that we've got it, and we need to solve it. And certainly, God is willing to help us do that, and he has the power to do that through the blood of Jesus and also through the instruction that we have in the word of God. Now, another reason why there is going to be conflict in the church and in the family is because it takes a long time to learn certain principles and mature. It just takes time. Now that I've been in the church all my life, but now that I'm middle-aged, I figured some things out that as a young preacher, I really realized how clueless I was about certain things. Dealing with elderships, dealing with people in conflicts, not always making the right decisions, having my feelings on my sleeve, other things like that that I've learned to get over over a period of time. And then there's also the doctrine. We have new people coming into the church at Willow that have never been taught the gospel of Christ. They don't know the principles, even the first principles of the New Testament Christianity. And so people take time to develop. And they're not going to be at the same level of maturity and faith as other people that are in the family. Do we have patience with them? Are we willing to teach them and help them? People are slow learners. You know, even Peter was slow on the uptake. In Acts chapter 2, he preaches a message that says, is to you and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. He's, he's preaching that the gospel is for everyone, not just the Jews, but also the Gentiles. But in chapter 10 of Acts, he still has to be taught that lesson. And in chapter, 30, uh, chapter 10 and verse 34, he finally says, In truth, I see that God shows no partiality. For everyone and every nation, those who, who fear God and work righteousness, they are approved by him. And he had to be taught that the Gentiles were also to be accepted into the church, even though he had preached the message that they were coming in. And then Galatians chapter 2, what was going on? Well, he was still having a hard time living with the Gentiles, learning with the Gentiles, and he was a hypocrite, and so Paul withstood him to his face. People are slow learners. Even the apostles were slow learners. We're going to be slow learners. We're going to have to have some patience with each other. Have patience with your spouse. Have patience with your children. Have patience with your brethren. Have patience with the leadership. Have patience with the ministers. Have patience with the teachers. Now let's turn over to Acts chapter 6. One of the things that Jerry was talking about, and I want to add this to the lesson. I didn't have this originally in my lesson, but I want to add it to the lesson. He talks about the real, the first church conflict that really ever arose since Pentecost. And that, of course, was what happened in Acts chapter 6, where the Greek-speaking widows, the, the Hellenists, were being neglected in the daily distribution. Okay, you go back to Acts chapter 2, and you have, of course, a different Pentecost than ever before. Jews and others, proselytes, foreigners, coming together and being preached the gospel of Christ. And, and the people that had killed Jesus were now obeying Jesus. The people that were screaming, crucify him, were saying, I need to crucify me. Some major things were happening, and everything was changing. And, and that brings on problems. In Acts chapter 4, you have the apostles being arrested and threatened not to preach anymore. In Acts chapter 5, you have sin in the church, Ananias and Sapphira. Problems are already happening, stress. And then in Acts chapter 6, a conflict. What are we going to do about these individuals that need help physically? Now, probably what happened, you can read in Acts chapter about 3,000 souls. Acts chapter 4, 5,000 souls. And it continued to be more and more. And as the church was growing so rapidly, there was going to be some needs that needed to be taken care of. And one of these was these widows, these Greek-speaking widows. And so there is a problem. 
You know, that happens a lot with church growth. We've been growing at Willow Avenue pretty consistently now since we've been there. It's been a great blessing. But it, the more people come, the more conflicts can arise. Um, it's funny to have to talk to the people that are already there about accepting new members. Someone's going to sit in your pew. Someone's going to park in your parking spot. I mean, these are things that you think aren't that big of a deal, but they're big deals to folks because we don't always have our priorities where they need to be. People being placed in old works, new ideas are coming, new programs, change that can be positive change, not ever changing the word, but maybe changing the approach to preaching that word. And those things that have been traditionally ways of doing things being challenged, and so there becomes opposition. People that are there, they feel threatened a little bit. The people that are coming in new, they want to be accepted a little bit. And so how do we deal with all these problems as we grow? So here we have a complaint. Now note, notice this right here. It says in verse 1, In those days when the number of the disciples, disciples was multiplying, see, good things were happening. <laughs> when good things are happening, that's when devil, the devil wants to get involved. And it says right there that a murmuring arose against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. A murmuring. Murmuring starts problems. What does that word mean? Well, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 10, we're told that we are not to murmur as some of them did, and they were destroyed by the destroyer. Talking about the murmuring of the Jews in the wilderness. Or in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 14, do all things without murmuring or complaining. That word means low and suppressed discourse. Under the breath a little bit. But the mumbling begins, the murmuring begins, and there is strife. Now, this strife or this conflict can either stifle a church or it can motivate a church. And you see that the apostles, with help from God, solved this problem because they decided to take care of it immediately. And so there's some principles here in problem solving that we can use in solving our problems at the church or solving them in the home. So let's look at the first one. They got them together. They summoned the multitude of the disciples and, and began to discuss it. So all communication needs to be heard from all places. There needs to be an evaluation of what has been shared, and then a solution needs to be proposed which is appropriate for that situation. That's number one. There is a conflict. It needs to be addressed. It needs to be discussed. Everyone who's involved in that conflict needs to address it. All of our feelings need to be shared openly. Remember we talked about families and the need that people have for families to ventilate their feelings and to have trust that they can be honest with the way that they feel? Do you know that the reason why husbands and wives struggle, the reason why churches struggle, is because people don't feel like they can really say what they feel. So what they have to do sometimes is they have to go to a counselor so he can translate for them. Now I can actually say what I feel because I, I, in the past when I say what I felt, someone took advantage of that information and used it against me. So, so there has to be trust. Trust, full trust that we can say what we feel. And so evidently, the apostles allowed all these individuals to ventilate their feelings, talk about the problem, and then begin to discuss coming to an adequate solution. There are good ways and bad ways to solve a problem. There was a story of a, a little boy, about three years old, in the other room while his mom was cooking dinner, and he was there with the infant child, and he let out a scream, let out a bad scream, so he came running into the kitchen, and mom said, well, what's wrong? He said, well, 
Well, she pulled my hair. She pulled my hair. Well, mom said, well, she's just a baby, son, and she, she doesn't understand. She doesn't understand, so don't worry about it when she pulls your hair, and she sent him back into the other room. Well, just a few minutes later, another scream, higher-pitched scream, came from the room, and, of course, she figured out that wasn't the son, so she went in there to see what happened. And she, again, looked at the three-year-old who could talk, and she said, is everything okay? He said, yeah, now she understands. Now, there, there are good ways and bad ways to solve problems. That wasn't the best way, was it? All conflicts and all problems need to receive quick attention. That's number two. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 25. What does Jesus say there? He says, agree with your adversary quickly while you're on the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge, the judge hand you over to the officer, and you're thrown into prison. Hey, if I know that someone's got a problem, I want to address it right now. We don't have time to let that be shelved and have to deal with that later on. Do you remember back, do you remember green stamps? Remember getting green stamps and putting them in the catalog and making books of green stamps or S&H stamps? And you, you collect enough of them, and then finally you could purchase something. Mike Dyer says that he still got a croquet set that he, I think it took him 10 books of stamps to get that. Took a lot of groceries before he could accumulate all those stamps. Well, some people, they, they, they have a, a, a book of stamps for their problems. And they just accumulate. And then eventually they just try and, and solve them all. They try and turn them in for something they think is going to be valuable someday. That is not the way to solve problems. There are too many problems to solve if you let them accumulate. And then what happens is there's no way to get after something that's gotten too big for you to stop. It's like a snowball that's gotten away and there's just no way to stop it. If we let that happen in our home, if we let that happen in any kind of relationship, if we let that happen in the church, there's going to be division, there's going to be strife, and there's going to be people that are going to leave. And people just don't always solve problems in the right way. I remember Brother Woodson used to say that some people vote with their feet. They vote with their feet, but that's not a good way to solve a problem. Some people vote with their pocketbook, but that's not a good way to solve a problem because your money already belongs to the Lord. You don't need to withhold your money just because there's a conflict. So we have to find a way then in the right way to have a quick response and agree with our adversary quickly. So the apostles say this, if there's a problem, then I'm going to fix it. We're going to fix it. We're going to deal with it right away. I, I want you, if you're, if you're married, I want you to promise yourself and you promise your spouse that if there's a problem, and if you know of that problem that exists between you and them, that you're going to discuss it, that you're not going to shelf these feelings, that you're not going to harbor animosity towards them, and then later on the, and down the line hurt your relationship. And the same thing has to happen when it comes to people in the church. Look, I don't want anybody in the Lord's kingdom to be upset with me, and I don't want to be upset with them. Are things going to happen that's going to maybe bring that on? Yes. I hope not. It's not my goal. But, again, as long as there are people, there are going to be problems. And there's a difference between peacekeepers and peacemakers. There's a difference. A difference between peacekeepers and peacemakers. Sometimes we think that we keep the peace, we're actually doing something good. Not if there's a problem that needs to be solved. We have to be peacemakers. We have to be proactive in finding some type of solution. So here's a couple of things that need to happen if we're going to be peacemakers. Number one, we need to practice Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 17. Now, I have learned that over the years that brethren struggle with this mightily, mightily. Now, I didn't think that would be the case because I just thought that 
you know, if we were in a relationship with each other, that we would discuss it with each other. We wouldn't talk to someone else about it. But you, what usually happens if there's a problem? Instead of going to that person, we want to talk to somebody else about it. We call this delivering mail to the wrong address, okay? Matthew 18, verse 15. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear you, take with you one or two more, and by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established, and so on. But what's the, what's the main principle there? Go to the source. Go to the person. Don't tell other people about the problem. Churches are going to be divided because of gossip, because of things being spread that other people don't need to know. Proverbs 26 and verse 20 says, Where there is no wood, the fire goes out. And where there is no tail-bearer, strife ceases. You know why there are a lot of problems in families, problems in the church? Too much gossip, too many tail-bearers, and too much wood being put on the fire. So there's also a responsibility then, isn't there, that we don't listen to the gossip. You, you have gossip speakers, but you also have gossip hearers. Well, sometimes you just got to hang up the phone. Don't spread it. Don't listen to it. God hates gossip. He hates it. And I hate it. I've seen it do a lot of damage to the church. And you know, it's not that big of a deal if you're not the subject of it. But once you become the subject of it, boy, you realize just how painful it can be that a person would speak of you when you weren't there, that they would say something negatively about you when you weren't there and you didn't have the opportunity to defend yourself and you realize also that most of the time anything that is gossip has a lot of untruth in it. In Romans chapter 1 and verse 32 when Paul is talking about the, region, the reasons for Gentile guilt he doesn't blame just the people who were engaged in it he, get, he blames the people that also supported those who are engaged in it. So we have to be supporting unity we need to be supporting truth we need to be supporting peacemaking, not just peacekeeping, and making sure that we love each other enough that we're going to go to the source. I want to tell you something that's really special that I have between myself and my eldership. This is really special. And as a young man, like I said, I've learned some things over the years in doing these things incorrectly. And I know that I always wanted this as a preacher, but I didn't always have it. The elders are the people at the end of the day that decide who the preacher is going to be, right? pretty much anywhere you go, because they are responsible for the flock and for what's going to be taught. A uh, man comes before a congregation. He usually tries out a few times. He meets with the congregation. They kind of feel him out. They make sure he's preaching the word. They look at his personality. They look at his track record and his goals, and then they give their opinions to the leadership, and the leadership decides to uh, hire the minister. If there's going to be a firing of the minister, the leadership's probably going to do that as well. So this is what we do. You know, the people really put us in there. People put the elders in there. But the elder and the preacher, the elders and the preacher will have promised this, that if one elder hears something about Jeremiah, the first thing they're going to say is, have you talked to Jeremiah about that? And if they say, no, I haven't talked about, to Jeremiah about that, they're going to say, well, you need to go talk to Jeremiah about that. And then when you're done talking to him about that, if you can't resolve that, you come back and tell us. Guess what I do if I ever hear anything about any elder? I say, have you talked so-and-so about that, that person? And they say, no. I say, well, you just go talk to them about that, and then when you're done, then we'll talk about it. You know what? We could do that if we want to with every member of the church. That's the way we ought to treat each other. 
But I believe beyond a shadow of a doubt that my elders are going to treat me that way, and I'm going to treat them that way. And in five and a half years, that's how we've done it. And so we have a great relationship because we are respecting each other and because we're allowing enough of that respect and trust to give us the opportunity to resolve any conflict that may come up, any, any disagreement or problem. Another thing that we need to understand if we're going to be resolving problems and conflicts is that the people that are in positions of authority are imperfect. They're imperfect. So your mom and dad, even though they had to decide the direction of your home, they were imperfect, and they didn't always make the right decisions, and they needed more information, and they needed to learn as they made the decisions. Elders are also imperfect. The apostles, even though they had the Spirit of God and direction of the Holy Spirit, were imperfect. Look in Matthew, uh, Acts chapter 1. It was time for them to select a new apostle. You remember after Judas died, after he had hung himself? And there were two. There was Matthias and Justice. And what did the apostles say? Well, we like Matthias more, so we're going to pick him. No. They asked the Lord to choose because they knew they weren't the adequate individuals to select that individual that Jesus had chosen the apostles, and he was going to choose the next one. So even the apostles understood that they didn't always have the power to make the best decision. It's a really good, important idea to never humanize God and never deify man. There's big trouble in believing that leaders are omniscient in putting the preacher on too high of a pedestal. And to understand or to think that leaders can read your mind, they cannot. Sometimes this happens in the church. It doesn't happen very often because we're good at communication, I believe, at Willow Avenue, but uh, I'll find out someone's been sick, and they've been in the hospital. And uh, they'll come to services, and they'll say, you know, I was sick for two weeks, and nobody called me or nobody came to see me at the hospital. And uh, I'll ask them, well, did, did you ever call anyone or let them know? You know? And they'll say, no. You know, sometimes they think that we're automatically supposed to know that. James chapter 5 says, if, is any among you sick? Then call for the elders of the church. Communicate the problem, and then they'll come. So we can't just automatically think that just because people are in positions of authority and decision-making, that, number one, they're always going to make the right decision, and number two, they're going to have all the information that they need. So there's this constant open door of communication that needs to be there in order for problems to be solved. Communication, training, talking constantly with each other and trusting each other. Now, another thing that you see in Acts chapter 6 is that the leadership realized that the problem was too big for them to handle alone. In fact, the apostles that at one time were doing works of benevolence, they took care of folks during Jesus' ministry, now said that it was time for them to, to concentrate on what? Preaching and prayer. That was their number one goal, and that this work needed to be delegated to someone else. Sometimes it can be believe it or not, wrong to do the right thing. Now, I've always taught that it was never wrong to do the right thing. Well, it is if there's something better to do than the right thing. In Acts chapter 6 and verse 2, it wasn't proper or wise or good for them to leave the Word of God to serve tables. That wasn't their job. There was something better for them to do and also an opportunity for others to serve. You know why churches don't always grow is because there's some people that think they have to do all the work and won't let anyone else have it. They won't delegate it. They won't trust someone with that work. The church has an opportunity to grow when we delegate it, when we trust each other, when we believe in each other. And then we select and appoint people to do that. We recently went through a, an elders selection process at Willow. 
Now, that can bring conflict. That can bring strife. Some people will automatically come to your congregation when you select new leadership, and some people will automatically leave. It almost happens every time. And you have to get through that as a family and move forward. Here we have an example of a selection from everyone and an appointment from the leadership. And I believe that's the way that we ought to do a process like that. Selection from the members, appointment from the leadership. And that helps us then, of course, to involve individuals in that process. I remember years ago, I was about 18, I was one of the people in our youth group that had been in the youth group a long time. And the youth minister had some problems, and the rest of the family at the church there decided they didn't want him to be the youth minister anymore. And it was hard on him. He was a deacon in the church, and his father was an elder, and he didn't want to step aside, but he'd made some mistakes, and he'd lost the trust of the parents. So they were going to let him go. And I remember him coming to me, because I was the oldest kid in the youth group. We didn't have a big youth group, and he, he wanted me to help him stay the youth minister. I need you to be my right-hand man and hang in here with me. And I said, Brother, I love you, but if they won't follow you, you cannot lead. If they won't follow you, you cannot lead. We then, don't we, look out from among ourselves and we select the leaders. And we do that because we understand that if you have a title of a leader and the people won't follow you, that's all you've got is a title and it's not the best thing for the church. Sometimes we have to actually step aside for the best of the church. Do you know that I'm only going to stay at Willow Avenue as long as it's best for the church? I would never do it for myself. I'm just a very small person in the kingdom of God. We should always step aside and let someone else take that role if we're not effective or if we're not doing what's best for the body of Christ. So the group needs to be involved in the solution. And that's what the apostles did. There was a problem, and the group was involved in the solution. If there's a family problem, talk it out, bring it to the front of the family, and then let everyone be aware of how we're going to handle the situation. I remember when my father lost his vision. He was the same age as me when he was legally blind. He, he saw fine before, but he had a very rare genetic disorder that caused him to lose his vision. And the only thing my dad ever wanted to do for us was to work and provide for his family. That's how he felt that he was helping us. He was never a very vocal person. He was a very strong individual who worked, 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 and took care of us, was always there for us, always there in church services with us. But it was very important for him to provide for his family. And the point came that he could not work anymore, and he had to stop working because of his problem. And I remember him sitting us down as a family and finally breaking down and crying in front of our entire family. Now, I'd never seen my dad cry like that, but he had to let that go. He had to vent his feelings, and he had to let us know that there was going to be some challenges and that everyone was going to have to get together and be involved in this solution so that we could move forward as a family. I believe that's how we solve problems. Involve everyone in the solution. And the final thing is trust individuals to be a part of that solution. Look what it says there. It says that the saying, what they decided to do, pleased the whole multitude. You see, when you get to do something about the problem, you feel pretty good about the problem. Trusted people are happy people. Trust people. The elders are going to have to trust the members. The parents are going to have to trust the children. Notice also that they didn't pick any Jews to help these folks. They picked Greeks. All those men were Greeks. And they knew those people. And they, since that's where the murmuring came from, they used those individuals to, to deal with the problem. You know, I, I like that. You know, people come and they complain about something. You know, we ought to be doing this as the church. We ought to be doing that as the church. And my response to that is, well, I'm so glad you brought that up. Would you be happy to lead that work? Boy, that's going to do one of two things. They're either going to get involved or they're going to get quiet. 
if you really have a complaint, if you have a problem, then you ought to be inspired and motivated to be a part of the solution. Motivation in solving problems is so important. Look, I want you all, this is, this is for you men out there. If your wife is not motivated, my question is, how do you treat her? Wives are not going to be motivated when they're not appreciated. And I know many times in my marriage, the reason why my wife is tired of the work that she's doing is because I haven't told her enough how important it is, how much I love her, and how great she is at what she does. And, you know, we need to do that in the church. Instead of micromanaging people in the church, we need to let them do their work, and we need to celebrate that work, and we need to encourage them. If you treat your employees well, they'll do anything for you. If you treat members of the church well, they'll do anything for you. We need to make sure that we love each other and we appreciate the work that everyone is doing in the church. I don't know about you, but this has been a great week. I have seen uh, a lot of people here supporting this work this week, and I think that this congregation has a great love for each other. I kind of feel like I'm preaching to the choir tonight because it seems like this is a church that's so close-knit and so close together and so focused on being a family unit and working together that this is probably the last church that needs to talk about solving problems. But I'm telling you, if you don't have problems now, problems will come. And you need to be ready for these things. You need to make sure that there's a solution available, and you're going to find it in God's Word. In Acts 2, there was a problem. In Acts 4, there was a problem. In Acts 5, there was a problem. In Acts 6, there was a problem. And guess what? The church grew, and it grew, and it grew. Don't be afraid of problems. Don't be afraid of problems in your family. Don't be afraid of problems in the church. Don't run from them. Solve them. And solve them as quickly as you can. Well, we come to the end of this lesson tonight. And at the end of every lesson, there is a big problem. It's the most devastating problem. And everywhere that I've ever preached, this problem has existed. There's always someone sitting in the audience that has sin in their life. And that sin is going to keep them from spending eternity in heaven. And I guess what we have to ask ourselves is, how badly do we want to solve the problem? You know what it says about Paul in Romans chapter 9 and verse 3? Paul was talking about the Jews. You go in chapter 10 and he says, My heart's desire and prayer for Israel is that they would be saved. I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and wanting to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. He says, They, they have zeal, but they don't have knowledge. My brethren are lost, and I, it's bothering me. And in chapter 9, in verse 3, he says that he would basically give up his own soul. He, he said, I wish to God that I would be cursed myself so that they might be saved. That word is anathema, and this is literally what it means. It means doomed to destruction. I could wish that I was doomed to destruction, that I was without hope. It means a thing devoted to God without the hope of being redeemed. It comes from a word that basically meant that someone had taken a vow. Something was being give, given up, and that thing was hung in display and forfeited. Like an animal that was slain like a lamb. Cursed. Paul said, I would be willing to be cursed, cut off from God, lost eternally, if my brethren could just be saved. How badly do you want to solve the problem? How badly did God want to solve the problem?
He let his own son be cursed and hung up for display. Smitten by God and afflicted. The problem was sin. Really, the problem was us. But God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. The solution was Jesus. You see, we have to desire a solution to the problem so much that we would do anything to make it happen. That's going to be the solution to the problems in our families. Don't run from your problems in your families. Solve them. Don't run for your commitments. Keep them. And that also has to be the way it is in the church. Don't run from your brethren when there's conflict. Love them through it and get through it with them. And by all means, if there's a problem between you and God, you should want to solve that so much that there should be nothing that would keep you from doing whatever it took so that your soul could be saved in the day of judgment. I've said this many times. It's something I've never understood over the years of preaching. I've never understood it. That a person could sit in the pew, know the solution to the problem, their soul be hanging in the balance, and then white-knuckle the pew and not come forward. I was immersed when I was a young man, but I would have been immersed every single time a sermon was preached if I needed to do it in order to be saved. There would be nothing that would keep me from it. Not my relationship with God, not the greatest love that a man could ever understand or experience beyond our comprehension, not the ability to be guilt-free, sin-free, and live for God. Jesus is the answer to the problem. He died on the cross for our sins, and he is the only answer. He is our only hope. So what about you tonight? Are you a child of God? Do you have sin in your life? The only answer to that problem is Jesus. The only cleansing power is his blood. And he offers it to you. And if that problem exists at the end of this night, then you are the one that is to blame. God loves you. He loves you with an everlasting love. He wants you to go to heaven. Don't keep him from accomplishing his goal. Don't keep yourself from realizing it. If you have a need to come forward tonight, won't you come as together we stand and sing the invitation song?